With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Cheryl Davis, the Executive Director of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission, and I am pleased to be your moderator for today's program. We appreciate your considering a donation to support the Commonwealth Club's work, and if you wish to do so, please click on the blue Donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at Commonwealth Club <coughs> at CommonwealthClub.org. We also want to remind you to support submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, Randall Kennedy, professor at Harvard Law School and author of the new book, Say It Loud. Professor Kennedy teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He was born in Columbia, South Carolina, and attended Princeton University, Oxford University, and Yale Law School. He also served as the law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. In his new book, Say It Loud, Professor Kennedy chronicles his reactions over the past quarter century to arguments, events, and people that have compelled him to put pen to paper. Three beliefs that are sometimes in tension with one another infuse his writing. First, Professor Kennedy observes that a massive amount of cruel racial injustice continues to beset the United States. He says this ugly reality has become alarmingly obvious with the ascendancy of Donald Trump and the various political, cultural, and social pathologies that Trump and many of his followers display and reinforce. Second, Professor Kennedy observes there is much about which to be inspired when surveying African-American journey from slavery to freedom to engagement in practically every aspect of life in the United States. Third, he says an openness to to complexity, paradox, and irony should attend any serious investigation of human affairs. Today, we're going to have hopefully a compelling conversation with this acclaimed legal scholar and public intellectual about what the past 25 years tell us about the future of race relations in America. Welcome, Professor Randall Kennedy. Thank you. I um, I am really honored and grateful and humbled by the opportunity to have a conversation with you. I just um, going through the the pages of the book has just been um, kind of thought provoking and inspirational. And, and I think I'll start with um, kind of the most obvious questions, just in terms of the title of the book. Say it loud. Um, you know, of course, it, uh, immediately I see James Brown, you know, uh, moving around on the stage and, and see his heels up in the air and kind of backing up and doing, I guess, the first version of the moonwalk, some would say. Um, why that Why that title, that title, right? You know, why choose that, um, you know, in this space of, you know, anti-Blackness or pro-Black or Black Lives Matter in some ways, you um, uh, you know, uh, he was the first one to really say Black Lives Matter and to have people take some ownership of being Black and proud. And so why that title? Well, it's a catchy title. (laughs) You you remember it, and I remember it too. And I remember it with tremendous fondness. And so um, I I thought it'd be a nice, catchy title, and and that's the main reason. Um, it's, It's also... I think, um, exemplary of a certain sort of double-sidedness that I wanted to show throughout the book. On the one hand, I remember with fondness James Brown's Say It Loud. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I remember it. I remember dancing to it. It It's great. 
Now, that's, that's the positive side. The negative side is why in 1968 did someone have to proclaim that? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, I mean, generally you don't go around proclaiming that you are proud of this or that. You're, you're proud of it and, you know, you're settled with it and you're just going about your business. Why was this such a um, controversial? Why was this so, you know, why, why was this so arresting? It was so arresting because, of course, behind the proclamation, say it loud, was the reality that there were many African-Americans in 1968 who did not view blackness um, with pride. Mm. Uh, there were many just people, I mean, you know, in the United States of America in general, blackness was denigrated. It was derided, uh, certainly among many white people, but among many black people too. And so it was that double-sidedness that I wanted, and I talk about that in the essay, as you know, but there's also a third thing. There's also a third thing, which is the question of, well, you know, race pride. Uh, should people be, you know, quote, proud mm-hmm. of their race? Now, it's, you know, it's one thing to be completely satisfied, completely happy, completely at ease with whatever, you know, whatever racial category you're in. But should someone be prideful of it? And so, you know, I, as you know, from reading the book, that's that's a question that I investigate in a in a number of the essays and i think we should be we should be careful about pride well it's interesting because when you said double-sidedness and having looked through some of the essays and just thinking about even the area talking about um the politics of respectability right and so when you talked about double-sidedness i i went back to these images of what was respectable and what was, uh, you know, and so I, I kind of went to, well, was this also a play on when you talk about double-sidedness? Was James Brown respectable, right? Like with his, with the 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 conch or what it, you know, with the the relaxed hair and the um, the language and the the enunciation and the dress and you know, I even think about when you know, as we were talking about this, I'm like thinking about even as folks. Look at the respect, the R-E-S-P-C-T, R-E-S-P-E-C-T with Aretha Franklin and understanding how much she did for the movement, right? And that folks maybe didn't see it off top. And even in the same way that James Brown was really supporting the movement in a lot of ways, but you wouldn't have gotten that from his performance on straight stage where, you know, you talk about um, your parents saying, you know, don't, don't act like a coon. But I would imagine that some of the older folks probably thought that the, um, that was coonery in some way in, in terms of what he was doing. Absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, you mentioned my essay on the politics of respectability. I'd say of the essays in the book, that is the one that is probably the most criticized uh, <laughs> by my students. They really, many, many of my students. Uh, really don't like my embrace of the politics of respectability. And you're right, it, one has to be, you know, one has to be careful with everything. I mean, I, I embrace the politics of respectability. I think that one ought to be very careful about the way in which one, you know, presents oneself to the public, especially if you're an activist, especially if you're part of a political campaign, you yeah. want to draw people to your side. Well, you know, if you want to draw people to your side, don't needlessly alienate people. I think that's, you know, I think that's generally good. You know, I think that makes sense. At the same time, just like you point out, there are a lot of people who you take, go back to 1968, who didn't like James Brown, uh, you know, with the conch, uh, with the clothes, just like there are people in the generation before who you know didn't like jazz, didn't like soul music, just and then to you know bring it up. What about the people who didn't like rap? All rap, the viewed rap as being completely you know you know disreputable. So you know, I love jazz. I like a lot of rap. I certainly like a lot of soul music. 
I like soul brother number one. So we have to be careful about, you know, all these things. And I guess one of the themes of the book is, well, let's be careful. Let's think. And let's, by the way, also be willing to rethink because, you know, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. Yeah, I I appreciate that because I really wrestled myself with like I could see myself as someone who um, grew up in the Bay Area, but was born in the South. Right. And uh, grew up here, Texas, just outside of Dallas, um, little town, Denison, Texas and Sherman County. And like the respectability politics was all like the you know, I, I laugh about my grandmother's sister who went to her boyfriend used to tease her because she would go to barbecues with white gloves on. And he was like, Why are you wearing white gloves to a you know a picnic barbecue? But that sense of like having having come from a sharecropper father and a slave grandfather, like her idea of how she needed to show up was very real. And I think the other piece of this, you know, there's a question um around the impact of George Floyd of George Floyd's murder well over a year later. And and one of the things that I was really was resonating with me as I was reading the the essay around the the narrative shift that you really talk about or the counter narrative and this idea of respectability politics, I thought about George Floyd or even Trayvon Martin and how Things changed in the sense that it wasn't, you know, now we're going to protest and put on our white shirts and our jackets, but people wore hoodies. They actually took on um, what would have been a negative to do this counter narrative, right? And same thing, like, it didn't matter what George Floyd's past was or his history was or what he was wearing at the time of his demise, right? And that in some ways, I'm like, how do we, how do you? talk about this kind of shift that now we're not going like we're going to hit the streets um, and we're going to all be dressed in our Sunday best, but we're going to hit the street representing and dressed in the way of the folks who were afflicted in terms of like the humanizing of folks. But how do we, you know, there's, there's a two part for me with that. Like it's that kind of shift that we're seeing where, you know, now we're not dressing up to, to protest, but we're actually representing um, the folks who have been impacted and they don't have to be, as you talk about Rosa Parks, the perfect one for this place, right? They, they can be, be Claudette Colvin at this point in time. They don't have to be um, with the, 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 you know, the, the flawless background. Now we're a year past George Floyd and all of the the social unrest that we saw last year. How do we how do we make sure that we don't lose some of that movement that really the organization of the 60s, right, where they had the movement and they were like, okay, we're going to train, we're going to prep and we're committed to doing this for the duration. So really this two part one is how we've had this shift of you don't have to be dressed up to to protest um, and that you don't have to be without sin to be um, recognized as violated. And how do we make sure those changes don't get lost, you know, in the case of George Floyd? Yeah, well, on the first point, the question of how one presents oneself. It's so interesting. One of my great heroes, um, one of my favorite people of all time, is the great John Lewis. Now, John Lewis, early in his career as a, as a, as a dissident, was part of the sit-in movement. He was part, he was a freedom rider. And he, along with all the other freedom riders, um, adopted a very conservative protocol mm-hmm. in terms of dress and in terms of manners. James Farmer of the Congress of Racial Equality demanded that freedom riders dress in a certain way. And he told them why. He said, you know, you, because you're, you're likely to get arrested. And when you are arrested, when your picture goes in the newspapers, I want people to view you in a certain way. Not just, you know, not just white people, but your relatives, your folks, black people too. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that he was really on to something, James Farmer. It was a, it was a very smart... Um, thing to, you know, to to do. Now, later in his career, and and John Lewis, by the way, abided by that. You see John Lewis 
You see John Lewis when he was um, at Selma, when he's you know knocked over by the, the horses and the, and he's and he's and he's and he's clubbed on the ground. One of the great moments in the history of the world, as far as I'm concerned, the the the, the stoic heroism he showed. Look at how he's dressed. He's coming from a church, you know. He's you know coat and tie. Well, you know that part of that was political. He mm-hmm. wanted to have it leave a certain impression. A few years goes by, you know, two or three years later, you see John Lewis. How is he dressed? He's dressed in overalls. He's dressed in overalls. He's appealing to the sharecroppers. Mm-hmm. He's saying to them, listen, I'm not biggity. I don't think I'm any better than you. I'm with you. And I'm going to show that I'm with you. So, again, um, I'm not saying that people have to, you know, do, frankly, anything in particular. You know, I mean, circumstances change. Mm -hmm. I am saying, however, that I want you to be thoughtful Mm -hmm. about how you present yourself. So when I encounter activists who say, I don't care, you know, I don't care what they think. Well, my response to them is, well, you're just being stupid and irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Of course you should care. You should care how your neighbors think. You should care how your allies think. You should care how your followers think. And, oh, by the way, you should care how your adversaries think, too. Mm -hmm. On your second point about, you know, how do we maintain momentum a great question. I don't think that I have, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish that I did have a fully worked out answer to it. I do not. I think it's a very difficult thing to the, the maintenance of momentum, the maintenance of morale. Um, I, I think it's quite remarkable that um, the activists over the past few years, especially with respect to the whole question of police misconduct, police brutality, police racism. For several years now, um, uh, those activists have, 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 have continued to keep that issue in the air, continue to push that issue towards the, the center of political consciousness. I salute them for doing that. And you know how we do that, not altogether sure. I think people can do it, you know, there's a huge country. People are differently placed. You know, if you're if you're a teacher, if you're a poet, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a politician, those are very different spheres. And I, I, I suppose you know you 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 try your best in all of them. Uh, but I'm not altogether sure how one does that. It's a great question. Um, I hope people are working on it. And and do you think or have you seen? Um... You know, the, this question from the, the chat, what changes in treatment of African-Americans by the police? Do you, do you think that there's been some change? I mean, I think we can see it on some, you know, locally and nationally. But what's your, your take on that as you talk about race relations? I'd say two things. Number one, we, we, we still have a scandalous condition. The scandalous condition is that these powerful agents of government... Um, that walk around with, you know, weapons that can, you know, kill you are regulated so loosely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disparaging the police. The police have a very difficult job to do. They have an essential job to do. Uh, I want the police, frankly, to be supported. I'm a, I am a supporter of good policing. It's absolutely essential. But they should be regulated. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. law shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, turn away from misconduct on the part of the police. As what happens so often, and so I think we we, we we're still in a scandalous situation. The law is failing us on that score. Mm-hmm. But has there been change because of the protests, because of the, you know, the spotlight on the police? Yes. You name me. I mean, just just in, in the last year, there have been more. I've, I've, I've read more articles about 
police prosecutions, investigations of the police, uh, police bureaucrats being shown the door. I've seen more of that than I have ever seen. And I can't help but think that that is uh, registering on the ground. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. We need to have, you know, we need, we need much more change and we need to institute it. We need Mm -hmm. this change to be instituted in our bureaucracies. We need to have a situation in which police who are friendly to the citizenry, police who are courteous to the citizenry, police who show respect to the citizenry, those are the police that get promoted. Those are the police that have wonderful careers. We should shape things in such a way that we get the police that we want. Has that been done? No, I don't think that's been done yet. That's what we need to push toward. But has there been some change? Yeah, there's been some change. It, uh, it's interesting because you mentioned John Lewis, and I, I, I had the uh, opportunity to host him a few times in San Francisco. And, you know, he was, people would ask him, you know, do, are things better? And what's, you know, and with his trademark trench coat and, you know, and he'd say, look, same thing you're saying, things are not where they need to be, but are they better than when he was walking and protesting and marching? Definitely, right? And so this idea of um, what you hit in the, the first essay there around, you know, shall we overcome, right? This idea of optimism versus pessimism and how we're moving through space and um, and keeping hope. I just, I have, you know, like, I think every page I've got like something where I just pulled out because this idea of, the ancestors in so many ways, you know, holding on to hope, right? But the reality of uh, of resistance and the burden of resistance. And, you know, Cornel West has a book, um, Prophetic Black Fire, where he talks about and really basically says, you know, some folks don't live long enough for us to see their shift and their change and their mindset. And I feel like you really document in this where somebody who starts out as optimistic, if they stay around the long enough, they, they kind of flip. And that's someone who starts out pessimistic. If they stay around long enough, they also flip And this kind of um, juxtaposition of like living and fighting and, and the burden that it takes on your mind and your soul. I mean, did you find that this, this kind of like sometimes people's, um, their their advocacy outlives their um, their passion, or that their passion outlives their advocacy. Sometimes um, you 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 know that essay. There's a reason why that's the first essay in the book. Uh, that's the that's the essay that, in a way, frames the book. Uh, in many ways, it's the essay that with which I struggled the most. So this is an essay on. Optimism and Pessimism in African-American Thought. And um, I've been in the optimistic camp. But as you know from reading that essay, I have changed somewhat. Um, One of the reasons why this essay means so much to me personally is because my father, whom I revere, my father of blessed memory, Henry Kennedy, Uh, was a thoroughgoing pessimist, (laughs) thoroughgoing pessimist. Uh, My father's answer to the question, you know, shall we overcome, was no. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. It doesn't mean that you don't stand up for your, you know, whatever rights you can get. But my father's view was that the United States of America uh, is, uh, you know, was, 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 was created uh, for white people, and that it that's and that's the way it was just simply going to be. Mm-hmm. Now, the the pessimistic, and so he was he was part of the pessimistic tradition, and that in my household, I heard that um, the pessimistic tradition is actually it's a very interesting tradition because. On the one hand, in the pessimistic tradition, you have people like, well, my father, you have people like Derek Bell, who's a you know, longtime colleague of mine. You have, you know, Elijah Muhammad, 
in the pessimistic tradition, you know, black nationalists would certainly, many of them in any event, would certainly be um, believers that, uh, you know, the United States of America is, you know, white man's country and it's going to stay like that. Marcus Garvey. Along with those folks, however, you also have Thomas Jefferson. You also have Abraham Lincoln. You also have Alexis de Tocqueville. That's in the pessimistic tradition. In the optimistic tradition, in the 19th century, the great spokesperson would be Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The great Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, even before the abolition of slavery, was asked whether he could see a day when white people and black people would live together as equal neighbors in this country. This is before the abolition of slavery. And he said, yes, I, I can see that. In the 20th century, the great spokesperson for this view would be Martin Luther King Jr. You know, read, you know, listen again to I Have a Dream. In the 21st century, the most consequential spokesperson for this point of view would be Barack Obama. Now, again, I still situate myself in the optimistic camp, but I have to tell you that in the last few years, I've been shaken. Uh, the last few years have filled me with trepidation. I thought we were further down the road to racial decency than we are. And, um, you know, I, like I say, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm still in the optimistic camp, but I, 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 I'm there with, with a sense of, with, with a sense of unease. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, as you're saying that, I just think, even the most optimistic are still have that tinge of pessimism, right? Like I think about um, in King's book, a collection of sermons, Strength to Love, he basically tells people to confront their shattered dreams, right? Like he, he understands that there's going to be disappointment, that we're going to have these frustrating moments and that in essence and in earnest, we're going to continue to come up against this wall. And one of my favorite um, poems is one by Maya Angelou, and life doesn't frighten me at all. And she has a line that says, don't show me frogs and snakes and listen for my screams. If I'm afraid at all, it's only in my dreams. So this idea of hoping is the, the thing that brings fear and terror more than the fear and terror of just living and breathing. So I think that what as I was reading through this, that's the one thing that I did leave with. And, and I, I left with this idea that, you know, as our much in the same way as the Negro National Anthem, right? Like that talks about, you know, coming through all these treacherous things and um, all of this stuff. We're still rising and hoping. And even Maya Angelou is saying, you may trod me in the very dust, but still like dust I rise, right? Like, so she's saying it's all going to be bad. It's all going to be bad, but somehow we keep believing and hoping. Well, I mean, J James Weldon Johnson, love James Weldon Johnson. And of course, lift every voice and sing is a great uh, articulation of the optimistic tradition. It's also one of the great, um, you know, patriotic mm -hmm. songs in the, you know, the, the, the canon. And those two things often overlap, the, the, you know, the patriotic tradition, the optimistic tradition. Again, you know, Martin Luther King, remember, I've glimpsed the promised land. Yeah. I mean, you know, remember, I mean, he said that hours before he's killed. And one, you know, when you when you when you see it, you have the premonition, you know, you 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 you've sensed that this is a man who maybe you know feels that the end is near, but he he was optimistic. He, you know, I I I I've glimpsed the promised land. Question, you know, do how confident now yeah. and further and further what you know what is the promised land so you know one of the last essays in my book talks about competing visions mm -hmm. of the promised land the great martin luther king jr's told us that he had glimpsed it he didn't tell us a whole lot however what it looked like 
You know, what was its topography? Where were its boundaries? What was the smell? What was the look? How did people act in the racial promised land? And, you know, that's for us. Yeah. I, I, I think that actually we need to think about that a lot more, actually. What, if, if we had the power, what would the racial promised land look like? How would we act in the, in the, in the sort of society that we actually you know, want to create? Well, it's interesting because one of the questions, um, you know, talking about the promised land and what we're hoping for, and in San Francisco, we have a reparations advisory committee, which my office is um, overseeing. And one of the questions is, um, how do you view the reparations movement? Is that part of the, the promised land? Is that, you know, paying for the harm that's been done? And what what are your thoughts on the reparations movement? You know, I'm going to tell you, I... Generally speaking, I am, you know, very sympathetic towards the reparations movement, have, have, have written in favor of it. One of the reasons, probably the, frankly, the main reason is, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who are in need and, you know, if, 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 the reparations idea will will funnel services, funds, opportunity to people in need. Fine, because I want uh, those things to be funneled to people in need. Here is a here here's where that something that hangs me up though. Imagine. Um, should we be so concerned with why people are in need? So there are people who are in need, and one of the reasons why they are in need is because they are the victims of a long train of, you know, uh, catastrophes, a long train of atrocities, racial atrocities, slavery, segregation, uh, you know, for, for, for Native Americans, the, the taking of their land, the destruction of their, of their, of their polities. I mean, you know, we could go on and on. Um, that's how some people end up in need. On the other hand, you know, what about a person who has, who's just come to the United States, just come to the United States, they are in need because of terrible things that have happened other places. What do I say to them? Or is, is their need less than somebody else's need because of the circumstances that made them needy? I don't, you know, I, I, so for me, I want to focus more on need, Mm-hmm. However, however, whatever the history of that need is, is secondary in my mind to the fact these are needy people. We have a country, we're fortunate enough to have a country that has resources that can, if, if we want, we can shift resources to people in need. That's what I want, regardless of why. So a, a couple of things. One is connected to the focus on need, which is a question from the chat about um, what role should government play in helping those who are, um, as they, they put in the chat, disenfranchised. But I would say, um, to your point, what's the role of the government to help those in need? You know, should it be a larger or smaller role than private groups? But but I think my question, even before that, just still connected to the reparations piece. Um, yes, what, what should the government government be doing to help those in need. But is there a debt owed to the descendants of slavery, right? Is there something beyond giving to just folks in need? Is there, um, you know, for folks who made money off of um, plantations and uh, folks who made money off of Black folks and have now become, you know, created this legacy or organizations or businesses, do they owe something to those descendants? I guess that's the that's my question. Just with regards to reparations, beyond meeting a need, is there a debt owed? You know, I 
I'm gonna. I, I want to fly. I want to. I want to flash a big yellow light of caution mm-hmm. on this. I'm from. I'm from. I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I I suspect that my descendants, um, you know that that my forebears were you know probably enslaved, probably enslaved. Um. Just suppose we learn that my forebears were part of the small sliver of free black people. Just suppose I learn that my forebears were part of the even smaller, but still in existence, you know, still they still existed. What what if I learned that my forebears were black slave owning people? Well, um, so if, if, if I learn that my great-great-great-grandfather was a slave-owning black, what? So, and somebody says, uh, on, on, you know, we have, we have evidence of this. It's true. It's like, look, you know, I, I don't contest. It's true. Then the person says, and for that reason, I want you to do such and such and such and such. You know, t- to me, I don't, I- I'm willing to do a whole lot. That particular set of reasons, however, doesn't, you know, frankly, you know, doesn't, doesn't move me. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think we need to be very, history is a scramble. My sense of this is that the atrocities are so great, they're so deep, they are so horrible, that there is, there is a, a good impulse in us to want to do something about the horrible past. It's like this evil was out there, and we can't bear to allow sort of the evil to get away. So we want to catch the evil, we want to we domesticate it in some way, and my sense is that reparations is our way for trying to, you know, to try to, you know, sort of get solace, get, you know, sort of reach a settlement. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to say, I mean, but, but here I'm going to say that the terrible fact is, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm calling it a fact. Maybe it's not a fact, but I'll, I'll call it a fact for now. Evil was done. We are not going to catch it. It's, you know, it, it may very well be that my great, great, great grandmother, or, you know, I don't actually we don't have to go back that far. That's exaggerated. I knew my grandmother. My grandmother was, my, my grandmother knew her parents who were, who, who had been in slavery for a while. So we don't have to go all that far back. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just say that, you know, one of my relatives was sold from their family auction block I can't catch that right irretrievable irredeemable and so for me I want you know what kind of what can we do Mm -hmm. to create as much social decency as we possibly can now and answer the question about government yes we need the government what do you mean the, the, the government, the government is all around us. And by the way, everybody's using the government. I mean, when, when somebody says, well, you know, um, you know, do, 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 do you want poor people to use the government? The rich people use the government. I mean, the airlines use the government. The, you know, Amazon uses the government. Lots of people are using the government. Why is it, why do we all of a sudden, you know, when it's poor people, you know, the, you know, should they use it? Yes, we need to use the government. The government is, you know, that us, we need to use the collective strength of our society to create a decent society for all of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and as you're saying that, I'm having... Um, like I'm, I'm seeing or I'm picturing the, the essay that talks about the Women's Convention of the National Baptist Convention and how those um, women were like 
coalescing and coming together and you know and then another line that you had that that talked about um you know basically fighting racism isn't just in this theoretical but it's also about you know we're it's one with um you know the the spades and the rakes and the like getting in there and getting dirty and turning over the soil and so i i wonder in that context how are we doing or should we be doing more to also stand up those cultural and those community groups that come with a level of pride and relationship that can engage can we replicate some of what what i feel like in some ways was lost in terms of our communities and our infrastructure you know um one of the things i try to show in this set of essays is that over the course of american history people of all complexions, all races, have done remarkable things in the effort to extend racial justice. People have, people have used what was at hand. So you take a person, you take, you take, um, take Emmett Till's mother. Here's this you know, totally modest woman, doesn't have much. Mm -hmm. She has a son who has just been sent back to her in a coffin. What does she do? What does this poor, modest woman in bereavement do? She takes the corpse of her son and uses it in the struggle for racial justice. I mean, great, greatness. And there are other people throughout American history who have done, who have taken what was at hand. And I think that there are people in our country today who are doing this. I don't think it's the case that, you know, once there were great people and now, not, no. I think that there are people in the, all across the United States who are doing things that um, should, uh, uh, that, 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 that are deserving of tremendous, tremendous praise. Yeah. Again, you know, let's think about, you know, last year and the hundreds of thousands of people that in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a pandemic, raise their voices. Or another thing, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, think about a year, a year, a year ago. A year ago, the future of the United States was on the line with the elections. And there were people in the middle of a pandemic I think of the, um, I think of people, in, for instance, in Wisconsin, in one of the primaries. It was a very important election, local election, very important. In the middle of the pandemic, there were people who stood in line for hours, putting at risk their health because they felt it was so important to vote the right way. I thought of the people in Georgia. My word, the people in Georgia stood in, stood in bad weather for hours, regular folk. You're not going to read about, you know, there's not going to be any front page, you know, magazine article about these people. These were people, just regular folk, stood in line, disciplined, did what they could. That spirit is still abroad we need to enlarge that spirit. We need to applaud that spirit. We need to we need to encourage that spirit in our young people. Agreed. I, I and connected to um, some of what you talked about. There's a question about: um, Can you comment on voter suppression in America? and where our electoral system is headed. And you talked about, you know, just the passion and the commitment, I think, um, of those states where folks, you know, it got a little bit harder to, to vote, and yet they stood for hours uh, to do it. We are in a bad situation. I mean, think of it. 
It's obvious. It's, I mean, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. It's obvious what's going on with respect to voting. There is obviously a concerted effort across the country to suppress voting, you know, in a, in a supposed democracy. It's an outrage. And the, you know, the, um, the excuses that are voiced, you know, uh, the, you know the, the talk about voter fraud, what are you talking about? Uh, you know, infinitesimal, totally marginal. It's, it's made, you know, virtually made up. Sometimes it is made. It's ridiculous. But it's got a lot of power behind it. And uh, there are agencies, obviously, obviously, uh, there is, there has been, and I think, that unfortunately, there will continue to be sufficient political power mobilized to prevent reforms that would diminish this voter suppression. And then you have the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States, a few years ago, eviscerated the leading, uh, the, 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 the leading Civil Rights Act of the Second Reconstruction, namely the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Our Supreme Court, I'm not talking about some Supreme Court in, you know, the 1890s. Mm. I'm talking about our Supreme Court. Right. Viscerated unjustifiably the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We are we are in a perilous situation, and people need to organize and be on their P's and Q's and do everything possible to turn things around. Because, you know, in, in all too many respects, not all, not all, but in all too many areas with respect to all too many issues, we are going in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I appreciate you you saying that and, and listening to you makes me think about um, in your essay around Derek Bell and me, right? And you do that conversation and you say um, he was really critical of your um, your not doing advocacy or his perception that you didn't do advocacy. And can you say more in terms of like that advocacy that he was referring to? Because was it about within um, the institution or globally? What what really is that? The the, the essay to which you refer is the second essay in the book. I think it's the longest essay in the book. It's called Derek Bell and Me. And um, I I spent a lot of time on that essay. It it, it means a lot to me. I mean, I was a colleague of Derek Bell's. I was a friend of Derek Bell's. We had a a very complicated relationship. Uh, I said I was a friend. I think that was, I think that's true. Um, But we had a, you know, we had a tempestuous relationship. We were adversaries sometimes. And we, you know, you know, why? Well, you know, partly generational. He was my senior. I think he had had experiences that um, prompted him to take a different view, a different look. Um, you know, our work was extremely important to both of us, and we had very different experiences, for instance, at Harvard Law School. Derek Bell was the first black tenured professor at Harvard Law School, uh, but he always felt like he was an outsider there. And he was all, and, uh, and he felt like he was an outsider there in part because he was, he, he never got his, he never got his props there. And one of the reasons why I wrote this essay is because yes, I'm critical of him. Uh, there's still certain things, you've read the essay, I remain very critical of certain things, but I think as a thinker, as a scholar, as a writer, uh, he deserved more than he received in terms of the attention uh, and uh, of, 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 of colleagues. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write this is because I, want, I wanted to take seriously his work uh, praise what I thought was praiseworthy, criticize what I thought ought to be criticized. 
We had a very complicated relationship. Um, there's certain features of his work that I've criticized in the past, and you know from reading the essay, I take back my criticism and I say I was wrong. And I make certain apologies in this essay. And, you know, Derek Bell's been in the news lately. Um, and I think that people are revisiting his work, and that's good. Again, I'm, I'm critical of certain things, very critical. But he was a person, he was a serious person. He was a hardworking uh, intellectual, and he's a person deserving of respect. And I certainly hope that I conveyed my respect for him in that essay. No, definitely. It, it, um, it, it, it prompted so many thoughts. And, and one of the questions that came up is around half of, it says half of Americans, largely Trump supporters, don't seem to acknowledge actual facts. How can we change that? And it just really, for me, this idea of where you, you, you call him the godfather, really, of critical race theory or acknowledge that he's been considered that. And this whole kind of conversation around critical race theory and what we talk about in schools and what's real and, um, you know, this, uh, the retelling of history uh, just made me really think about the the voice and the work and that push, you know, the foundation that you share um, around Derek Bell just really intrigued me. I'm going to be spending some of my reading moments trying to go back over and find um, what what you point out in this space. But this idea of how do we get folks to acknowledge the facts and, and critical race theory, I think, is an example of the challenges we're facing. Listen, um, you know, this critical race theory controversy. There are organizations uh, that invite me to be part of discussions about critical race theory because I've been a, you know, I've, I've been very critical. And I think sometimes when I get invitations to these things, they invite me because, you know, I'm a person sort of on the left and they, fig they figure, you know, oh, goody, we're going to get somebody sort of on the left to, uh, you know, attack critical race theory. So let me just say a couple things. First of all, I think that the, uh, the effort to banish critical race theory is a very dangerous effort. And frankly, whatever you think about critical race theory, you should shun the effort to banish it. This is a terrible encroachment on freedom of thought, freedom of learning. Uh, it's a terrible threat to our schools at every level. And so I just want to put that out there. Second of all, you know, uh, people have made a boogeyman of critical race theory. And again, there's certain features of it that, you know, that, that, that I reject. And, you know, we can talk about that if you'd like. But I would like to say that the central aspects of critical race theory, as far as I'm concerned, the central themes are perfectly sensible. One theme of critical race theory, probably the most central, is racism has been absolutely foundational in American political culture. It is, you know, pervasive. It has been deep. It has been influential. Well, frankly, you know, who, what, uh, is that wrong? That's true. Secondly, the critical, you know, the second big theme of critical race theory is that the reforms instituted by the second reconstruction, anti-discrimination law, is not enough. I mean, you know, they, 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 you know, that was a big point. They said, listen, we, you know, you know great Civil Rights Act of 1960, you know, 60, Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, Voting Rights Act of 1965, Open Housing Act of 1968, Brown versus Board of Education, Loving versus Virginia. Great, 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 great. But at the end of the day, on the ground, the situation is that racial minorities remain marginalized, remain stigmatized, remain subordinated. It was not enough. So we've got to do more. We need new initiatives, more aggressive initiatives. Again, I say, listen, okay. You know, it seems to me, frankly, you know, a lot of that makes sense. 
And so, no, I do not want to be associated in any way with the, um, uh, the attack on critical race theory that we see. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't criticize certain aspects of critical race theory. One thing I criticize, for instance, um, some people who identify themselves with critical race theory have, in my view, been all too, um, have, have been insufficiently attentive to the claims of freedom of expression. So there are some people with critical race theory who say, you know, uh, no big deal in banishing, in suppressing, in censoring, you know, racist expression. Well, no, no, I'm not going to be, uh, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm critical of that position. And I think what's going on now partly shows why I'm critical of that position. Donald Trump says that critical race theory is itself racist. The people who are trying to banish critical race theory are saying we're trying to banish a racist belief. Well, that shows why one needs to back up off of the banishing, of, you know, the attempts to banish ideas. That can work a lot of different ways. You can be the target of that. So, hey, let's be careful. Uh, I stick to ACLU type national coalition against censorship type ideas. One of the things I think has been great about, frankly, American democracy, there are certain things which are really quite good about the American, polit American political culture. One of those is a very, very vigorous, very very vigorous um, embrace and support of freedom of expression. And I, that, that, it seems to me, needs to be, we need to, we need to redouble our efforts and expand freedom of expression as opposed to, you know, drawing down our efforts. So in that way, I'm, I'm critical of some of the people with critical race theory. But again, you know, people ought to understand not everybody who calls themselves a critical race theorist believe the same thing. It's, there's right. probably some critical race theory people who would say with respect to that, they're on my side. So we need to, you know, again, folks need to read. Don't just take, you know, some, you know, one sentence from some, you know, from a new, you know, one paragraph or one sentence or one 10 second clip from somebody who characterizes critical race theory take the time to actually read what people have to say. Yeah. I, I mean, the question too then is beyond even critical race theory, but some of these like revisionist, right? Like to say, to re, to rename slavery, to say that it's not slavery, right? Like how do we get folks to acknowledge the facts, this idea that, you know, slavery happened. Like uh, people may not want to talk about it, but do we erase it from the history books? And this is why I also wrestle with, you know, the, the idea of statues and monuments, because, you know, and I know you have ideas and thoughts on that as well. Like it's not taking those statues and monuments away does not erase what happened during that task, that time. And so it, are we missing an opportunity to, to learn, to talk and to, to look at history. And so these ideas of facts, you know. We need to be very careful. Again, I applaud the people who, uh, in, an, in an effort to advance, you know, anti-racism, have demanded that we pay attention to, you know, the monuments and other memorials around us. I'm uh, great. I, I'm, I'm all for that. We should, we should know what's around us. We should, we should know about the people who are called heroes, even if they did, you know, atrocious things. We should know that. But we need to be careful about uh, our tactics. We need to be careful about our aims. So let me, you know, let me, let me, let me tell a little story about where I am at Harvard Law, at Harvard Law School. The symbol for Harvard Law School used to be an insignia that was taken from the family 
the family insignia of a, of, a, of, a, of a family that donated, it, actually its donation was central to the founding of Harvard Law School, the royal family. And students learned about this a couple of years ago and said, you know, let's get rid of this insignia. I mean, you know, this is horrible. These people were, you know, these people were slave traders. And the law school, by the way, has, did get rid of this insignia, okay? There was a committee to discuss this and try to figure out what should we do. The chair of the committee, maybe she wasn't the chair, but she was on the committee. Um, One of my colleagues, Annette Gordon-Reed, wrote a dissent the majority opinion was let's get rid of the insignia in honor, you know, let's, let's get rid of the insignia to repudiate, you know, that, that slave holding and slave trading and to honor the people who were so terribly victimized. My colleague, Annette Gordon-Reed, wrote a dissent and said, you know what, I want to maintain the insignia to honor the enslaved. Because what she was afraid of was, okay, we get rid of the insignia and, you know, in a few years, people will have forgotten about the enslaved. I think that she has a, I think that she is on to something there. Uh, I think, you know, we need to be very careful about erasing so much that, you know, in 30 years, you'll have people who will think that there was, you know, well, gosh, uh, was there a confederacy? (laughs) Yeah, there was a confederacy. Not so long ago. And by the way, even after the confederacy was defeated, I'm going to tell you something else. There were a lot of people who considered Robert E. Lee to be a great hero even though he took up arms against the United States of America. Don't forget that. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that. And I think those are the the hard conversations. And I know that people get caught up in um, the debate about, you know, some of what you hit on. And I was, I really appreciated it in, um, I can't remember which of the essays, but this idea of, um, going along to get along in some way, right? That, you know, I think it was the Princeton, uh, the essay about the ultimatum of Princeton and that, you know, folks sign on to things that they may or may not agree with um, in the name of, um, you know, not looking like they're, they're not supportive. So I think that um, that's, that's the thing that we wrestle with so much, right? Like how do we speak our truth without being called a racist um, or having the dissenting, um, opinions. And, and so I, I guess my final question would really be in this sense, like, how do you hope people will use this book? Because I do think, I actually was looking at some of the essays this morning, and I was like, oh, I need to be able to use these for some of our workshops and engagements with folks to, to really use it as a, as a tool. But, but how do you hope or envision that the book can be used? Because I think it opens it up to both sides, really, of the conversation. I hope that people will buy it and read it and discuss it and uh, you know um, I, I hope it will be informative I hope it will be provocative uh, those are my hopes for this book you know along with you know all my other books I don't I don't expect everybody to agree with all of it I have I, I have friends whom I like and deeply respect who disagree and disagree strongly with various aspects of it. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, you know, as, as, as is clear from the book, uh, I disagree with myself from time to time. It's not like I, you know, I stay put. There are a number of places in this book where I say, you know, 10 years ago, I said this, but upon rethinking I think that, you know, I, I've, I, I've, I've changed my mind for these reasons. I, you know, I, I want people to grab the book uh, and take it seriously. Great. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, the opportunity to, to speak with you and um, have uh, 
already started to quote many pieces from the, the book. Uh, I appreciate the language, the candor, and the honesty, and um, encourage folks to um, get a copy, to read it, and um, enjoy it, and be uh, motivated to, to do a little bit more. So our thanks to Randall Kennedy, professor at Harvard Law School and author of the new book, Say It Loud. We want to remind everyone that Professor Kennedy's book is available online and at your local bookstore. We also want to thank all of our viewers. I'm Cheryl Davis. And now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 